Hello and welcome to the Bulletin of Spanish Studies podcast. I'm Gemma McKenna and I am your host. In this series, we talk to academics from around the world and get the lowdown on the latest cutting-edge research in Hispanism throughout Spain, Portugal and Latin America. In this episode, we will be talking to Dr. Marina Pérez de Arcos of the University of Oxford and the London School of Economics about an unusual soft power weapon, a stout fiddle-playing Irishman, so-called by the Times, who've so far written two articles off the back of your research, and this man played a significant role in Britain's war effort from Spain in 1940. There will even be talk of spies. Welcome to our podcast, Marina. We're delighted to have you with us. Hi, Gemma. Great to speak to you. Thank you. To give our listeners a little more background, Marina is Research Associate at the Centre for International Studies and the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. She teaches international relations and is the founding coordinator of Spanish studies at Oxford until the end of this academic year. She is also guest research fellow at LSE, where she teaches international history. Marina, your article, Education, Intelligence and Cultural Diplomacy at the British Council in Madrid, 1940-1941, is pretty special. It was awarded our James Whiston Memorial Prize for the most outstanding article of 2021. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel so honoured. Our general editor, Professor Isabel Torres, said your meticulous archival research and engaging voice combine in a superbly researched and well-argued study that merits the highest praise. We're going to hear more about your fan mail later, and I'm not exaggerating, there is fan mail. So, <laughs> first of all, what, what sparked your interest in this topic? Well, it might sound surprising, but it was actually a trip to Bombay, India. So I received a British Council scholarship in 2015 to go to India to spend some time at Delhi University and Bombay. And um, I attended a lecture there um, given by British Council staff explaining their work in India and the importance of teaching and learning English for social mobility there. And that story resonated with me. I was born in Seville after all to Spanish parents. And I vividly remember as I was taking the lift down after the lecture, speaking to one of my peers and saying to them, wouldn't it be fun if I could explore the Spanish case? You know, what was, what's the story there about the British Council in Spain? But I sort of left it there. Um, but then a couple months later, I got an email from the British Council of Spain saying that they were celebrating their 75th anniversary. So I did the math. Um, this was still 2015. So 2015 minus 75, that was 1940. And that's not just any year. France falls to the Nazis and Britain and its empire alone at war. So that's really where it all started. Yeah, rather a tense time. But you also then, did you have a link to the school in Madrid, the British Council School? Yeah, I, I had studied some years uh, at the British Council School, but this was not something that uh, the story about the founding of the school and the British Council was not something that we'd been told. Um, and in fact, later on, I realized that um, the, the chair of the board at the British Council, who normally is the, the ambassador to Spain, didn't know about the story uh, of the origins of the British Council. So this wasn't really... So it was almost a mystery that you came across and then you were able to find out more and share the details of that, even with the people who worked there now. That's fascinating. Totally, totally. That's totally been the case. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it, it, I think this 
the research fits though into three bigger strands of my own research mm-hmm. um sort of conceptual content and methodology so methodology is uh, it's really my interest and uh, how I go about doing research, which is really archival based, mm-hmm. mixed with interviews. And yeah. then content wise, I'm interested in Spain's international relations uh, in the 20th century. And, uh, and then also this link between individuals, institutions and, and impact. So there's this mix there of political history, social, cultural, institutional history and international relations and also impact. So historical, so at the time, but also the impact of an institution now. Can you then set the scene for us, the time of the British Council establishing this school in Madrid? was a very, very tense time. So can you tell us about that? Totally, so very tense indeed. So when the British ambassador to Spain, Samuel Hall, um, arrived in Madrid in early June, 1940, Spain was still far removed from the war front, but a week into Hall's term, fascist Italy joins the war and Paris falls to the Nazis. Um, so it was really, more than ever essential, according to Hall, who writes some memoirs, um, to keep Spain out of the German camp, because it was not just Spain, but Portugal, North Africa, Gibraltar and the Mediterranean were at strategic risk. And Spain, until June 1940, was officially neutral. Um, and after that, it declares in its non-belligerency, then reverts back to official neutrality in September 1942. Now, there's excellent scholarship that's shown that I, I have, um, that my research piece feeds on, um, on Nazi, German and fascist Italian propaganda in Spain, which was wide, widespread. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this includes a monthly uh, you know, big monthly budget to pay for advertisements, mm-hmm. promoting German economic and cultural achievements, bribes to Spanish writers and journalists, um, and news features written by German embassy staff in Madrid, yet published in the Spanish press as independent international reports. Interesting. Um, cultural enterprises in Spain were extremely well-funded, had uh, great resources, bought buildings, palacetes, to host their their cultural institutions and schools. Um, and in fact, I was able to, to pull on some of the research written in German um, for the piece, especially about the German Cultural Institute in Madrid. So that was very helpful. This was where the British could see that the Germans and the Italians were there first. They were getting on really well at spreading the word and getting their propaganda out there. And the British were missing a trick. So Samuel Hoare went over and then, then what happened next? Spain was strategically important for Britain. Um, and uh, in fact, Winston Churchill, he writes in his memoirs later, memoirs later that uh, Spain held the key to all British enterprises in the Mediterranean. And it was not just uh, military strategy that was at stake, it was also economic resources. Um, So again, in Churchill's own words, uh, Spain had much to give and even more to take away. Um, But as you said, uh, the British Council, or Britain rather, was a little slow in comparison to, to other European countries in setting up an institution to promote uh, 
um, British culture and the English language abroad. In 1940, only the, the British Council decides to open up shop. And so the person that was charged with sort of getting this off the ground, who was he and what can you tell us about him? Did you know about him before you sort of went into this or how did he, how did you come across him? Not at all. I didn't know anything about him, so uh, about Walter Starkey. In fact, I discovered him as I went along doing the research. Um, my initial interest was in the institution, in the founding of the British Council in Spain. But then what I found was a fascinating individual and very inspiring founder and sort of mastermind behind Britain's cultural diplomacy in Spain. Now, he was a scholar, he was a Hispanist, an Irish Hispanist, um, and, uh, and uh, but it very, with, with a broad range of interests, both academic and uh, sort of hobbies as well, I guess you could say. Um, he, he played the violin, he wrote travel books, he roamed around uh, Europe playing his fiddle. Like a wandering minstrel. Absolutely, in. yes, yes, yes. And he also lectured about wandering minstrels. So uh, <laughs> he was one and lectured about being one and about the, the concept. He was also a director of uh, the Abbey Theatre in Ireland. Um, so his great interdisciplinarity permeated into the cultural and educational programme in Spain that he put mm -hmm. together. And uh, so that he was... You know, very special in that sense, mm -hmm. um, because he combined all these different um, disciplines and interests. Uh, so he was not just an academic, um, mm -hmm. but at the same time, he had the credentials of being a well-known Hispanist. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to that, he was a very sociable person, and uh, he had his first contact in fact with Spain was it seems traveling with his wife uh, on their honeymoon in a third class train around Spain uh, and uh, and since that sort of first first trip he kept on going back to Spain and expanding his social network yeah um, across different uh, social classes and backgrounds and uh, and what he then did as director was that he put at the service of the role he was given his own network. Um, so rather than using the role to further his own network, it was really the other way around. And, and that really resonates uh, with me. Uh, but again, I only found out about it uh, as I was doing the research. I didn't know before. Yeah, he sounds like a fascinating guy, but he was also, as you mentioned, he was so well connected. He had this massive network. So how, and that was in Spain, but how did the British decide on him as the, really the, the right person for this role? How did they find him? He ticked several boxes. One was that he spoke Spanish really well. Um, the other thing was that uh, he was a scholar, so he had those credentials. At the same time, he was Catholic, and that was one of the conditions um, that was laid down in sort of the negotiations between the British Council and, and the Spanish government. So he ticked that box as well. In addition to that, he, and this goes back to his uh, connections, um, there were several reference letters written by uh, 
really senior individuals such as the Duke of Alba and the Archbishop of Westminster in favour of Starkey's appointment. And why do you think it is that people haven't known about him and that scholars haven't written about him to date? Well, that's that's a great question. So um, he's been written about a little bit, but really uh, he's been approached by music and literary scholars who have seen, who have therefore seen Starkey as a producer of music with his fiddle and, and literature. Uh, but the thing is, he stops writing both travel books and scholarly pieces during World War II. Obviously, he's otherwise engaged. So then, um, because of that, then he's not really been uh, analysed as uh, or approached in his role as founding director of the British Council in Spain, which is what interested me. After all, I started uh, the research project based on my interest in trying to understand why the British Council would be founded in post-Civil War Spain at the start of World War II when Britain is alone at war, um, rather than knowing about the individuals. So it was in his role as founding director that interested me to start off with. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think it, uh, it this research takes quite a lot of painstaking um, archival uh, research, which... But I think you love that, Marina. Absolutely. I totally, <laughs> I was about to say, I totally, I, I really enjoy doing archival research and, you know, um, and connecting documents and materials in different languages that I find yeah. in sort of random archives. Because you speak quite a lot of languages as well, don't you? Obviously English, Spanish, Portuguese, French. French. Yeah. German, I think, as well. Yes, yeah. yeah. So that obviously helps to to know where it is I could find materials mm -hmm. and then obviously to to engage with them and incorporate them in the research. Yeah. And uh, and at the same time, uh, it's sort of this tirar del hilo in Spanish, you would say. Uh, archival material is, is for me is absolutely key. So then where can I find more? And so it's based on references in those documents that uh, that I that I first read through that uh, direct me to other pockets of of materials. Yeah, because this piece you had you looked in the spot in the archives in Spain and in the US and in the UK, and then now you're considering pulling the thread further in different country. Every country that you visit, you're like, oh, is there an archive I can visit today? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. No. In fact, um, the, uh, the there were some really fun moments doing archival research for this project. Um, so, uh, as you said, I used material in in Spanish archives, and uh, and, and this uh, how the idea came up to look in Spain was partly because. Um, I, I read a report that Starkey sent um, to British Council headquarters in London, uh, speaking about, uh, or rather reporting about him being invited to speak at the Real Academia Española as an, as an academic correspondent. And um, so I mentioned this to my, to my mentor in Spain, uh, 
Professor Jose Manuel Blequa, to whom the article is dedicated, by the way. And um, so he'd been director of the academy. So I asked him whether the academy had an archive and, and he told me that they did and that it was open for researchers. So I went and found Starkey's file as an Académico Correspondiente. And another one was I have uh, had for several years now a close association with some of the college at Oxford and I was invited to high table by the by the principal Baroness Jan Royal and saw a really beautiful interesting painting of, of a woman which was labeled Enid Starkey so ah. I looked her up and it happened she happened to be Walter Starkey's sister of course and, uh, <laughs> had been a fellow at Somerville College hence the painting there and wow. uh, she donated her papers to the Bodleian Library in Oxford so I went to Bodleian to see what was there if she had written to her brother and you find that she had, of course. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That she'd kept the correspondence and then donated it to, deposited it um, at the Bodleian. And she was actually, you know, Starkey uh, was definitely a pioneer, but so it, to an extent, so was she. She was the first woman at Oxford to get a PhD in modern languages. So they sort of be a family of, of firsts. Yeah. Um, at the same time... Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, so we spoke of the Duke of Alba um, backing Starkey's appointment as director of the British Council in Spain. And I went to the Palacio de Lidia in Madrid to, to the archive there. And, you know, I was sat in the library, in the main library uh, of the palace to read through these materials. And I was sitting below a painting of the Duke of Alba, of Jacobo Fitzjames, Stuart, and uh, painted by Fuluara. And Fuluara is, along with Manuel Machado and the novelist Pio Baroja, um, the three people who proposed to Starkey that they create a weekly tertulia at the British Council, which mm -hmm. they did and, uh, you know, continued to hold many sessions. So he was very important in the the cultural activities as well. And you, and you mentioned there the Tertulia, but there were so many other amazing stories about the people that he brought over, the members of the nobility, surgeons, Jesuit priests. He even had Leslie Howard over as well to give a talk, didn't he? Yes, he, he did. And, uh, and it was actually um, Leslie Howard's last trip because on his... Yeah. Uh, on his way back to to Britain, he and um, the Luftwaffe, the the German aviation, shot down his plane on the coast of Galicia, mm -hmm. and uh, so it was his lecture at the British Council in in Madrid was sort of his his last swan song, and uh, but looking into uh, Leslie Howard because of this lecture. He lectured at the, the British Council, but it also recited some Hamlet soliloquies in Madrid. I think many of us know him because of his role in Gone with the Wind. Exactly, in Gone with the Wind. For this research piece, I, I didn't know that he was an English Jew, for instance, and mm -hmm. I found out about that for this uh, research for the, and that he'd um, made lots of anti-Nazi films in support of the British war effort ah. um, during World War II, and that included Pimpernel Smith 
uh, and uh, the first of the few, so two other uh, films. And interestingly, in Pimpernel Smith, he plays the role of a Cambridge archaeology professor who fools the Nazis with a fake excavation. Um, he tells them that he's trying to find evidence of Aryan origins of German civilization. Um, to get them to approve his excavation. But actually what he's doing is he's freeing inmates of concentration camps and other persecuted intellectuals. So, and that linked, that sort of film plot linked really nicely with some of the work the British Council in Madrid do uh, in terms of intelligence support activities and humanitarian work in Spain. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there was a case of the art paralleling life. He was tricking them again because he was talking about this film and everything that he'd done. And then it was actually happening in the wings. Interesting. Totally. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. I just love reading these descriptions of Walter Starkey and looking at the pictures of him because you imagine somebody, he obviously must have been incredibly intelligent, so well connected. So you sort of have this image of him. And in reality, in the photographs, he looks quite stout and he's always laughing and joking and carrying his fiddle and playing a tune. So he's like that sort of bumbling, genial old uncle. And I, I mean, I'm convinced that there's a film in all this, Marina. You know, you have to get the screenplay out there. But I can see <laughs> Brendan Gleeson. Literally, Walter Starkey is made for that role, <laughs> so we'll have to keep our eye out for them. Um, some of the other people you, you mentioned, so we had the novelist and the tertulias, he had Leslie Howard, but he also had flamenco evenings as well and, and Czech pianists. And so all of this tied into some sort of subtle messaging, really. How did that work? Yes, definitely. It's very and clever. Yeah, and um, in, in both attracting Spaniards over to the council, but also uh, critiquing uh, sort of veiled criticisms, deep criticisms at the same time of uh, German and Nazi German policy. So mm -hmm. the, the flamenco um, soirees is def uh, definitely a very clear example of that. Walter Starkey deciding that how they, the council should celebrate the end of the, their first academic year in, in Madrid is with a flamenco party uh, with geranios and little birds, canaries and, uh, and bailadores. Um, and of course, there's another, uh, there's a criticism there to Nazi German policy towards the Roma gypsy community. One of the things that really we probably should mention is that he also established the school. So one was the school, uh, the other one was a, a language centre, and then the third one was a cultural centre. Now in the, the, the other Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, they because they had more resources, they would sort of split this, inst this institution into, into different ones. So they would have a school and a language center mm -hmm. um, along with a, with a cultural center in these beautiful buildings, palacetes, that they would buy in, in Madrid. Whereas poor Starkey didn't have that much money, he didn't have those, the, those sorts of funds. So he had to content himself with um, renting out a little palafete, cute, 
opposite the Retiro Palace, which uh, he thought was perhaps a very residential area, but also there was an institutional point that he was making because it was located two streets down from the Royal Academy, from the Real Academia, and also from the Prado Museum. So it was really at the center in his view of Spanish culture. Yeah. And that's where he wanted to root this British home, which was indeed a school, a language centre and a cultural centre. Mm -hmm. And so what was different about the school in terms of the way it approached education that was quite novel at that time in Spain, wasn't it? Because he took a very child-centred approach. He took the pupils out to the Retiro and their break times. And what what was different about it? Well, it was co-educational to start off with, which was um, both rare in Spain, mm -hmm. um, but also in the UK. Um, and uh, so, and the fact that was not hidden, but rather um, it was quite clear when the children were um, were sent off to the retiro to roam around. And at the same time, it was bicultural. So it wasn't a British school and it wasn't a Spanish school either. It was a British Spanish school and where uh, both languages were taught, where traditions, both uh, cultural traditions were performed, um, celebrating Christmas with uh, Belen, so nativity scene and a Christmas tree. So, there was, uh, and also fermenting the arts. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think this also comes from his own interest in theatre and music and song. So again, his, his uh, interdisciplinarity also came across in the pedagogical programme that was, mm -hmm. that was set up. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, so it wasn't just for these young children. There were some rather wider implications of the British Council establishment on language learning in Spain that Starkey really brought about himself too. What, what could you tell us a bit more about that? The, the English language was a third class language within the educational system in Spain at the time. And, uh, and so by uh, his, through... Uh, the teaching of the English language uh, in the language centre, it allowed English to be, uh, it allowed a space for English to be taught officially mm -hmm. um, and for, for aspiring Spanish diplomats to take classes there, lessons there. Although it must be said that many of them were then blacklisted because by the German authorities, um, because they were attending lessons at the British Council. So then, wow. then you had some drop out or then go back to the schools, to the language centre. Um, so, and he had to manage all of this with an unfriendly press in Spain, uh, a press that would refer to the, the British Council, the British Institute as Instituto Botanico, Aww. or the British Museum. So wow. he had to manage that. <laughs> um, also, they couldn't really advertise because although they'd, uh, the British Council had verbally got um, approval 
to set up in Spain, it was only verbal approval. Mm -hmm. So there was no document. So they started off, Starkey started off without having a real document that said, yes, you can start. Just flying under the radar and hoping for the best. Exactly, exactly. And at the same time, he didn't have a particularly supportive British ambassador um, to to, to help. He actually sent a, a letter requesting for a for an inspection to be sent from London to to Spain, sort of telling, uh, um, criticizing, massively criticizing, Starkey and his wife to British Council headquarters. Um, And at the same time, Starkey had to manage uh, a difficult situation and competing uh, with his rivals, other scholars, other Hispanists, in fact, who led the Italian and German institutes. So it sounds like Samuel Hoare was actually obstructive of his whole enterprise. Yes, somewhat obstructive, yes. The other sort of strands to your article, so there's education and there's cultural uh, significance. And then the third part is intelligence. So here's where we start talking about spies and people coming across the border in clandestine fashion. What was going on there and how was that working? So um, I actually... uh, came across uh, Eduardo Martinez Alonso, who was the, mm, the doctor at the British Council School. Mm-hmm. So he was employed by Starkey um, because of a historical novel I read by Patricia, Eduardo Martinez Alonso's daughter. Ah. And so from there, I tried to see, okay, are there materials that I can look at myself. So I found his um, special operations executive file at the National Archives. And from there sort of started to see links um, between the British Council and humanitarian uh, and uh, intelligence um, support work. Um, so, So how it worked was that they, uh, and uh, Eduardo Martinez Alonso in in particular, would um, help allied servicemen who had fallen, uh, so especially pilots who'd fallen in enemy territory, occupied territory, and needed to return to uh, Britain in order to go back to uh, the war front, Um, but also refugees, Jews, to help them to get out Um, of France into Spain and then out to Portugal or Gibraltar. Now, the literature had really focused on this sort of passage into or through the Pyrenees and then sort of from Portugal to Gibraltar off to wherever, whether it was Britain or the US or elsewhere. But what happened in in Spain, in Spanish territory, that wasn't really something that the literature had looked at much. And uh, so there was definitely a gap there. And with these new materials and this link with the British Council and Starkey also um, putting up uh, servicemen, allied uh, servicemen, Jews in his own apartments and Starkey and other British Council staff members, including Eduardo Martinez Alonso, would help to uh, get um, get them some food and allow them to rest 
in in sort of a safe environment and uh and then uh sending them off mm-hmm. to uh to in this case galicia uh so i found a map uh, that martinez alonso had to draw to prove his identity um when he had to flee spain to britain um, because the Gestapo were after him. So he had to prove who he was, that he had supported the, the British war effort. And how he did this was by drawing where he would help this sort of these uh, passages into uh, Portugal over the Minho River. Mm-hmm. So he sort of identified the the, the cross draw some dots on, yeah. on a little map fascinating stuff and I know that this was featured in the article that was in the Times as well tell us this Marina you uncovered a link between winning this prize which is set up to honour James Whiston fellow emeritus and associate professor at Trinity College Dublin and for many years the general editor of the Bulletin of Spanish Studies and the object of your study Walter Starkey because Starkey was the first graduate in Spanish from Trinity to be admitted to the Royal Irish Academy. Isn't that right? And then Whiston followed in his footsteps to the Irish Academy almost eight decades later. Is that right? Indeed. And also he wrote Starkey's entry in the Oxford National Biography. So that was that was another link there mm-hmm. between the two. Fascinating. And that we only discovered that afterwards. So you write in a very engaging way, I must say, because I read a lot of articles and I thoroughly enjoyed reading this one. Tell us about how you approach it, because I think it's a little different than most academic writing. It comes, I think, from my interest in theatre um, and this sense that in, in theatre, and I've done quite a bit of acting in the past, I founded a, a Spanish theatre company in Oxford that put on wow. plays in Spanish mm-hmm. and I played Finea in La Dama, in Lope de Vegas, La Dama Boba and other, um, other characters. Um, to me, it's important uh, to tell the character's story and to connect with the audience. So in a, in a sense, you're the actor or me as the, someone on stage, I'm simply a mediator. So I need to ensure that I'm able to tell this character's story. And in, in for this case, for the article, it was Walter Starkey's story mm-hmm. um, in a way that uh, readers found engaging. Mm-hmm. So for you, it's about thinking outside of your area, reading literature, that's reading novels even that have sort of a different pace and that are trying to engage a reader and bring them in. And it's not just sort of writing down the facts and presenting them in a very scholarly and perhaps slightly stiff way. You want to bring the reader along with you and be excited about what they're reading, really. It, yeah, it, it's, it still aims to be as scholarly as as possible with this element of of enthusiasm and excitement that I feel when I'm doing uh, the research and also to present it in a way that um, that anybody can read it and understand it and follow it. Um, so uh, and, that, and that's actually one of the things that I've been uh, comments I've been receiving um, in the, these past few weeks 
from from people who aren't scholars uh, who've seen the the piece referenced in the times and then have gone on to read the article in the bulletin mm -hmm. um, and uh, and they they've not felt like oh this was just for scholars it of course it is for scholars for fellow hispanists but it's not just for them um it seeks to go to to engage yeah. uh, a wider audience yeah because you're very interested in connecting with your audience and and you're doing that on twitter and social media as well but there's there's and there is a lot of buzz about the engagement as you mentioned in academic circles these days but really marina i think you could give us a master class in how to do it um so why, how do you do it or, or what, because I think you'd almost approach it in an entirely different way that you're thinking about it before you start rather than when you get to the end. I guess for me, public engagement is, is not a buzzword. It's mm -hmm. integral to my understanding of being a scholar and researcher. I, I feel this commitment to, to sharing the knowledge I, I acquire uh, and I just really revel in being able to, to help others learn and find stimulation in learning. So that's also how I how I frame the the story I tell, um, both in writing, but also when I uh, when I then share um, the, the the research, whether it's in a lecture format. Um, so that's that's really important to me and, and who I uh, who who I am, I think, as a scholar. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I did mention jokingly at the start that you have had fan mail, but you really have, haven't you? Go tell us about the fan mail, because I love this. And, and that's such a beautiful thing that's come out of this to, to receive emails from um, from former teachers of the British Council who've suddenly uh, seen this piece in the Times or in the Bulletin or if they've seen it in the Times, traced it back to the Bulletin and have wanted to share their own experience with me and or said, oh, now I understand why this was this way, or this all goes back to Walter Starkey and sort of um, connecting the dots. Uh, and then also people who who worked in the um, at the council as cultural representatives later on um, in the seventies, and those kind of people as well getting in touch, they might say something that triggers another avenue for exploration, and you can find that out as well. What, speaking totally. of that, what is next on the list? Because I know that you're in Austria and that you're looking at archives already there. We can't stop you. So what what is uh, what's next on the list? So right now I'm revising an article on Spain's humanitarian work in, in the First World War. Um, so as a neutral country in, in this war, supporting families on both sides of the conflict um, as they searched uh, for loved ones. And mm. um, so, uh, but ha but based on the research on the British Council in Spain, there are two main themes that uh, that come out directly from this piece. Um, so one is the foundation of the British Council in Portugal, uh, which came earlier than the one in Spain. So, and I think what we can uh, learn from this is not only to tell the story more, more in more detail of how the council was founded in Portugal, but also make comparisons 
with the Spanish case. Uh, so for instance, the founder of the British Council in Portugal was an English teacher. He wasn't a scholar of Portugal, whereas yeah. Starkey was a Hispanist. So did that lead to different results? Yeah. Um, and at the same time, how the British Council uh, in Spain engaged with democratization in the 1970s and 80s. So mm -hmm. in my preliminary research to sort of finish off the piece for the bulletin, I looked at some of the, the files from this period and found that there was sort of a policy of promoting democratization in Spain. With that in mind, how do you decide and at what point on where you're going to target your article for publication? For me, it was uh, for the, this particular piece, it was really important that um, I, well, I wanted to publish in a journal that published historical work by top Hispanists. So I remember reading an article by Paul Preston on George Orwell's um, homage to Catalonia. And, uh, and this linked to a piece that will soon come out uh, on the understudied bond between Felipe González and the German Chancellor and Nobel Peace Prize um, winner, Willy Brandt, who spent part of the Spanish Civil War in Barcelona and the Aragon Front, hence the, the George Orwell connection there. So mm -hmm. that was really important for me that, uh, that people like Paul Preston publish pieces in, in the bulletin, but also um, that, that the story I, I tell is one about a British-Irish Hispanist. So I mm -hmm. wanted Hispanists from different fields to be able to read it and engage with it. Yeah. Um, and and I must say, I'm so glad that I, I went for the, for the Bulletin of Spanish Studies, not only because I got a fabulous award, um, <laughs> um, but also I got a response from reviewers after only a month. And I have been made to wait twice for nine months before. Mm -hmm. So super professional. And after the article was accepted, the 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 team at the Bulletin have been fantastic, um, super supportive and collaborative um, and really thorough. So um, it's been, it's been really, I mean, it was a great, I think it was a great choice and, uh, and I want to thank the team. Oh, well, we're delighted that you chose us because it's a, it's a fabulous piece of research. So we are absolutely thrilled. Um, so we've got to this point in our podcast where we talk about try this at home techniques for those of you who have listened to our earlier ones. And these are things that you do at home to sort of get you in the zone. So you already mentioned that you love reading widely, all sorts of material, your love of theatre. Are there any other wacky things that you do when you're stuck to eat two squares of chocolate and go for a walk in the park for 20 minutes? Or do you listen to Joni Mitchell and Luis Miguel or maybe a mashup of the two? <laughs> what is it that you do? Well, as you, as you mentioned, uh, I read novels. So there are references in the article uh, to Javier Marias and Camilo José Cela, both who mentioned Starkey, but I didn't actually get to them because I was looking for references uh, to Starkey, but actually simply because I read their work. So, um, so that was, that's one, and it, that helps me with the, the style, I think, and um, with the aesthetics and the, the, 
the the rhythm um so that to me is very important that scholarly that, that a piece should sound as beautiful as much as possible so the aesthetics yeah. mm-hmm. that come from reading novels but also uh, scholarly works that are just uh, just beautifully narrated even mm-hmm. if the topic has nothing to do with my research subject so I have sort of a few a, a few books that to me uh, are really helpful in getting into this um, this writing mode one would be um, Avi Schleim's The Iron War is about Israel and the Arab world so nothing to do with really with what um, I work on um, and uh, and also another thing that is a new trick so uh, for me that I'm uh, I'm very happy to share in case it might be useful Ooh. for others is um, archival material really inspires me um, and uh, I've learned that the freshness and the inspiration that I get from an archival session, uh, I sh- uh, it helps to to carry on uh, and sit down and write a little bit, um, even if you know you might be tired or you think that you've done your work for for the day. I felt that that excitement and that enthusiasm from doing archival research that day uh, permeates into my writing style mm-hmm. um, if I push myself to write up some thoughts. Um, so let the adrenaline give you that final push to get some thoughts down in paper because it makes yeah. it easier later on. Brilliant. That's yes. Nice. Yeah, That's yeah. Nice. And another thing I'd say is uh, to that search for intellectual stimulation in in different ways and carrying a notebook or or take notes on your phone when I go to exhibitions you know you never know where that stimulation or where that link uh might like Mm -hmm, absolutely that's those are fantastic tips I think I can definitely get something from there well, thank you so much for joining us, Marina. I've really loved hearing this story with its vibrant cast of characters and lots of twisty plot lines. And listeners, if you've enjoyed hearing about Marina's article, check out our last podcast where we spoke to Dr. David Rudzinski about his article, which focuses on a film about the famous postmortem photograph of Che Guevara, El Che Cristo. So that's a goodbye from me, Gemma McKenna, and I'm already looking forward to your company next time. Ciao, ciao. Bye.